I've not told you lately, I love you. I love this church. I really do. I don't think any other time in my life I did really fallen in love with a church. But as I was um, coming back from Middleton, I noticed my heart was pounding a little fast. And I knew it was because I was going to be with the people I love. No, that's not it. It was the fact that I had to get here really quickly. Um, but I love you. I really, really do. I love being a part of this congregation. And if you're not a part of this congregation, we invite you into the loving fellowship that we have. Pastor Ryan um, did not read the text I anticipated him to read. I'm not going to read it. Um, if you're not familiar with the parable of the prodigal son, you can find that in Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 11. But as we know, in the prodigal son, um, he takes his inheritance, goes far away, comes to a place of really understanding that he has reached rock bottom and then comes back to the father hoping just to be a servant and they kill the fatted calf and have a party. A wonderful, wonderful parable. Now don't get me wrong, I love to preach, but it just seems that the lectionary is always out to get me. <laughs> we preach the lectionary around here. That is a three-year cycle of particular verses that are prescribed for every week. And so um, we use the lectionary. I love the lectionary. It keeps preachers from preaching only their pet peeves or out of only their favorite book. I was actually once part of a congregation where the pastor took almost three years to get through Romans. It was good, the first hundred sermons. <laughs> and so the lectionary is good. I'm just saying that this week is one of those weeks. So what choice did I have of what text to preach? There's a chapter in Joshua. I don't know how to say this delicately, so I won't. It's a chapter about the circumcision of all the males born during the 40 years of a hike through a desert because there was no ritual in the desert. Or one of the most well-known parables ever written. And then my epistle alternative was Second Corinthians chapter five, where we find verse 17, new creation that Scott has been preaching about for six years. <laughs> I think he has it covered, <laughs> but that's where I'm gonna go today. And we can probably say it by heart. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. You know, sometimes we kind of play 
scenarios out, like what would I do if I was on a desert island and didn't have the Bible? Or what if our house was on fire? What would you save? And all the good holy people in the room always say I would get my Bible, even though you can buy one on Amazon in a matter of seconds. Get the baby pictures, people. Save the baby pictures. <laughs> well, if I were in a situation where I could only access a part of scripture, 2 Corinthians would be very close to my heart. And if I were to pick one chapter that I could only have, it would be chapter five. Oh, those are lots of good chapters in 2 Corinthians. Because here is the essence of the gospel and a call to a holy life. You see, God reconciled the world through Christ. We are estranged from God because of sin. We are broken in our relationship. We are alienated in our relationships with each other because of sin, but on the cross, Christ absorbed sin into himself, became sin for us so that God does not count our sins against us. We could not do it ourselves. We cannot fix our own brokenness. We cannot fix the alienation that we sense. But God did what we could not do for ourselves by reconciling us in Christ so that we might live in the very life of the Trinity. And God came all the way to us in Christ. We did not have to make our way halfway. God came to us. And Christ opens the door, not only for us to be forgiven, but also that we might be the very righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God. And as a result of Christ's death and resurrection, we are not only forgiven, but we are made new. The old is gone and the new has come. You are new creations in Christ. Thanks be to God. I don't know if you know the theology behind that, but the question is a question of big theological word, atonement. How did Christ's death affect my salvation? It's a very important question. And basically, um, we need to know that there is no orthodox theory of the atonement. There are like eight or 10 theories. It's not at like um, the nature of Christ was decided at the Council of Nicaea that Christ is fully God and fully human. There was no council. And so we have a variety of ways of explaining what Christ has done. And basically there are two 
different categories of these atonement theories. Sorry, I'm a theologian. I gotta do this a little bit, forgive me. There are the theories of atonement where God um, and humanity is separated by our sin and God needs sin to be punished. God feels wrath toward us because of sin and needs to be appeased. And so what Christ does is he steps in for us as our substitute and he takes sin upon himself and punishment upon himself so that God doesn't feel angry with us anymore. That's one kind. What you need to know, again, is that there is no one orthodox theory. I'm on the Articles of Faith Committee for the denomination. I have been for about 15 years. And it never fails that every other year or so, um, some district decides they want to put that theory into the manual of the Church of the Nazarene. And we always say, no. If the world is listening to me, stop it. We are much more inclined to the other kinds of theories of the atonement where the cross becomes God's greatest expression of love to humanity. The atonement is God's way of communicating to us through the life crucifixion of the son. He says to us, this is the length to which I will go to love you and to save you and to redeem you. And so the word appease changes to the word appeal. God appeals to us, not in some judicial sense, but as an appeal of a beloved to a lover. God appeals to us through the divine mediator, Jesus Christ, who he himself said, there is no greater love than this, than that one lays down his life for his friends. The love of God. We don't take a particular theory, but we lean hard. Our tradition believes that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And so in the cross, God appeals to us, come and receive the love I wish to lavish on you a type of love that will not only forgive your sins, but a love when it is within us that will actually transform our very being into new creation. This is the gospel. But that's not the end of the gospel. And so chapter five, 
also speaks of another side of the gospel that must be, must be paired with the first. Otherwise, it's like we have, we all have shiny new clothes and we just sit here and admire our clothes for the rest of our lives. There is another side. If you have your text still open from 2 Corinthians, I'm going to read from some verses. Not in order, so keep up. Verse 18. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Verses 14 and 15, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Verse 20, we are therefore Christ ambassadors as though God we're making his appeal through us. And now we see the context of new creation. We tend to read verse 17 sometimes quite without the context of verse 16. Here they are together. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. And so if we take verses 16 and 17 together, which is a good idea, we see that part of what it means to be a new creation person is not to see people from a worldly point of view. The problem is we do it all the time. I don't know if you perhaps saw um, a video that's been going around this week a pastor, Andy Stanley, was asked to speak to the House of Representatives of the state of Georgia last Tuesday. I've never seen anything so blunt and brave. You see, his speech focused on the tendency of politicians to raise support by dividing people. Unfortunately, in your world, he said, there are advantages to division. You can raise more money when things and people are divided. In the political realm, the goal is always to appear as if you're losing to an enemy, but not to actually lose. 
And Stanley says, what a terrible way to lead. Those of you who pander to foster division are terrible leaders. But if you need an enemy to lead, you're a poor leader. He said this, very wise, disagreement is unavoidable, but division is a choice. Stanley encouraged legislators to follow the example of Jesus. And Jesus says, just because somebody considers you their enemy, you do not have to return the favor. You do not have to take your cues from enemies or call them or treat them like an enemy in return. What if we just stop that? Stop treating enemies as enemies. He went on, I'm sure they were squirming in their seats. He went on to point out another incredible truth that we have a tendency to impunge or question the character of those we disagree with. It might just be on a matter of opinion on a topic. But in order to win, we go after the character of those who oppose us. Modern politicians and pundits, he said, often make broad accusations against entire groups of people, including references to corrupt Democrats or racist Republicans. And he looked them in the eye and said, you know that's not true. So what if in the state of Georgia, we just stopped using the language of division? Instead of questioning the character of others, Stanley urged the legislators to meet in the middle between the two parties because the messy middle is where problems are solved. He's not, but he sounds like a Wesleyan. <laughs> in the middle is the way you change the world. I'm gonna steal that. More generally, what Stanley is pointing out is not just political in nature. It's indicative of a sinful perspective. It is indicative of what it means to look at others from a worldly point of view. Stanley's words could be used not just to indict politicians, but the church. What it, would it mean if we were to live as if we have no enemies? What kind of enemies do we have? 
First of all, there are enemies who are our ideological enemies. That just means people that we disagree with, matters of opinion. I think we've turned some of our beliefs into idols because it's more important for us to be right than to treat the other person like a human. It is too easy to criticize someone else without ever having a conversation with them. We dehumanize people when we do that. There are enemies who make us jealous. We think about that older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. He is jealous because his brother, who clearly does not deserve it, is given a party and he is not. There are enemies who make us jealous because they have more fill in the blank, money, prestige, beauty, power. And there are enemies because we feel threatened in our security. We make enemies of anything that might make me feel insecure. Now I don't wanna imply that some of us don't have people who treat us like enemies, who do us harm, where appropriate boundaries need to be set up for our safety. They have set us as their enemy and wreak havoc in our lives. But even in these cases, we would at least, can we at least consider Jesus' words about being slapped or carrying a cloak or giving up our coat? Jesus says we are to pray for our enemies. What if we could, as Paul says, as far as it depends on us, live at peace with everyone? We are in a time unprecedented in world history so many things running into each other and we are depressed and we are anxious. But some of us have gotten into the habit of this critical spirit where you sum up a person. What if we could live in such a way that we aren't fighting all the time in our heads? What if we could live in such a way that we don't immediately criticize someone's character when they disagree with us? What if we could live in such a way to humanize people by refusing to believe that their whole life can be summed up in a soundbite? What if we were to live in such a way that we weren't jealous of people 
and covet what they have? What if we could live in such a way that we find our security in God alone and trust him in everything? What if we stop living our lives with all sorts of enemies that we create for ourselves? Among other things, we might just get our witness back. We might be able to actually represent the love of God to a world that so desperately needs it. We might be good ambassadors of reconciliation because we are reconciled people. And by the way, the literal meaning of the word reconciliation is to stop being angry and discontented. It's been several years now, we've heard Pastor Scott say it. We are alerted to the fact that the next generation is leaving the church by droves. They will tell you that they are not leaving Jesus, but his church. And I ask them why I'm bold enough that way. There's a class that particularly lends itself to the relevance of that question. Why are you leaving? The answer is not hard to understand. I'll put it in my own language here. They can't handle our hypocrisy any longer. They ask why people who call themselves Christian, who faithfully go to church and might even say that they are sanctified, why is it that they are so mean and bitter and spiteful and disrespectful and downright hateful? I've been hearing this for a few years, but something has shifted and I'm trying to make sense of it. On the whole, our students are wonderful. Hear me say that first. But what has shifted is that we now have mean, bitter, disrespectful, and downright hateful students who claim to be fighting God's war. Something has shifted and I wonder if it's from there watching our hypocrisy to the place of mimicking our hypocrisy, which probably means that we've modeled it for so long that it has infected their character. What if we could live our life as if we have no enemies. You see, the thing is, when they answer the question, they said, yes, you're, you're not very nice to the world. 
but they're much more upset about the fact that we are so mean and spiteful to each other. Because we disagree, we assassinate each other. Because we're jealous, we ostracize each other. And because we feel insecure, we can't trust those enemies. I should probably stop, but I have one more place to go. The parable of the prodigal son is a beautiful story of reconciliation where a younger son goes out, spends his fortune, is hungry, has reached the bottom, and who decides to come home and be a servant in his father's house. And we are told that the father has been watching and waiting that long road, hoping to see that son return. And when he does, he runs to him And he throws a party. He says, I don't deserve to be yours. He doesn't even listen to that. You were lost and now you're found. Beautiful story of reconciliation. But actually the parable also does not have a resolution It leaves us, I think, with a question. Perhaps to ask ourselves. Whatever happened between the two brothers? We don't know. Will they be reconciled to each other? Will the older brother not see his younger brother as an enemy? Maybe Jesus leaves us with the question because we are to live out the answer. Are we living my friends, as those who are reconciled to each other. As if God is a making his appeal of love through us. As we enact our ministry of reconciliation not just to the world, but to each other? And are we being Christ's ambassadors of grace? Are we giving grace to those we have set up in our mind to be our enemies?
they will know we are Christian by our love. As if God is making his appeal through us, they will know we are Christian by our love. As we enact the ministry of reconciliation, they will know we are Christian by our love. As ambassadors of God's unlimited grace, do we know we are Christian by our love? Let's pray. Holy and loving God, I thank you that while we were yet sinners, you died. We thank you for the greatest expression of love possible, that you laid down your life, Jesus, and call us friends. We thank you for our salvation, for our new creation, our new birth, our ability to grow in grace into the very likeness of Christ and the very righteousness of God. It is all through you. But Lord, we also stand in need today because we can't change our minds or our hearts without your aid, without your Holy Spirit who convicts and the Holy Spirit who assures. Lord, if there are any today here who do not know you personally as their savior, I pray that you would draw them to yourself because or in spite of us. And we pray for ourselves that we would not live for ourselves alone, but rather be so transformed by your love that we truly become new people capable, willing to love each other and love the world with the same laying down our lives kind of love. In Christ's name, amen. Stand with me as we sing. Jesus. 
somewhat of a hard word this morning. In our tradition, we often give altar calls for people to come and to seek forgiveness, for God to provide for our need. It's a wonderful place of being reconciled to God. But Jesus also said, if your brother has something against you, leave the altar and go and be reconciled to that person. And so this morning, it's appropriate to come and pray, but it's also appropriate to go seeking reconciliation with each other. And I believe we do that. That's why I'm in love with this church. But if you know of something, be obedient. What I've been talking about, if you've listened closely, is the sanctified life. And so receive this benediction. May the God of peace sanctify you through and through. May your whole body, soul and mind be kept blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who has called us to this life will give us grace to live it. And all the people said, amen.